General Arnold Podaro. I'm a retired Marine Corps Major General. I'm the author of a book entitled The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. We face in this country the most existential threats we've seen in our lifetime, particularly from China. This book is written really for the citizens of the United States of America to understand that if we're gonna preserve our way of life and preserve our freedoms, we've got to have a strong military. We've got to get more bang for the buck for the dollars we're spending so that we can compete with the Chinese who now purchasing power is greater than the United States of America. Their military has grown very powerful. We are spending more than we've ever spent, and yet the capability that we're getting for those dollars is decreasing. To understand China, you have to understand the history of China. And China takes the long view of everything. If it takes a year, if it takes 10 years, if it takes 100 years, if it takes 1,000 years, they want to be the dominant power in the world, militarily, economically, and politically. The warning signs are absolutely out there. China has published uh, what they want to do by the year 2035, and they're on a road to do it. So we have got to wake up. We don't want to be sleeping while China takes over the world. I want people to wake up and realize, despite the fact that we're spending over 400% more dollars than we spent in the peak of the Reagan buildup, we're buying less and less of the warfighting capability that we need. The force is 50% smaller than it was. We have 50% fewer army divisions. We never want our military to go into a fair fight. We want to give our young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines the best technology and the best chance to preserve the freedoms that we so cherish. Over a million people have died since the Revolutionary War protecting those freedoms. And if we don't make some fundamental changes in the way our Department of Defense operates, we will not be able to prevail in the future. If you are a key decision maker in the Pentagon, if you are a member of the Congress making decisions on our national security, if you are a think tank thought leader trying to figure out ways to improve the way our national security operates, and anybody that's interested in protecting our freedoms, you should read this book because it's a roadmap for the changes that we need to make to ensure that our country is gonna be able to protect our citizens and protect our democracy against some of the most pressing threats we've seen in all of our lifetimes. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special and distinguished guest on with me for this podcast. Uh, he is General Arnold Panero, and he is also the author of The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Um, uh, it's an honor to have you on, sir. Uh, how's it going? Uh, John, such a privilege to be with you. Everything is going well, but we live in a very dangerous and unstable world, worse than the peak of the Cold War. So uh, you have served uh, for 34 years in the Marine Corps, and you served for 20-plus, uh, I think 24, in the United States Senate. Um, you have a very unique experience and career path. Uh, you reached the rank of a general in the Marine Corps. Um, so we're going to cover everything. We'll talk about your book. Uh, we'll talk about how you're viewing the world, the you know, national security, from a national security standpoint, from a foreign policy standpoint. Um, there's a lot going on. But th let's start in the beginning for you. Um, can we talk about like what motivated you to join the Marine Corps? Well, John, I... 
I was in school in college um, in the South in the peak of the draft during the Vietnam War eras, eras. And so I graduated from college in 1968. That was the peak year of the draft. And I tell people a little tongue in cheek that everybody I knew got drafted that year, but Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. So I was basically going to be going in the military um, whether I wanted to or not. My father had served with Patton's Army in World War II, and he said, Arnold, don't get drafted. You'll end up going in the Army and going to Vietnam. So I decided to volunteer and join the Marine Corps, and I actually ended up getting to Vietnam faster as a Marine than I ever would have if I'd been drafted into the Army. But obviously, I don't look back. I, I had a, a, a wonderful 34-year career in the United States Marine Corps, but that was really, frankly, I was dra- a draft-motivated volunteer because the uh, and that, you know, that was the peak year of the draft. And, and I ended up doing my basic training and, and a little bit of infantry training and, and went to Vietnam right away. And uh, what part of Vietnam were you at? So I basically was out in the uh, field the whole time I was there. I didn't last that long, uh, but I basically served uh, in the Quezon Mountain region, which is about 17 miles southwest of Da Nang. And um, we were my main mission as a Marine Corps infantry platoon commander, a small unit commander. Our job was to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was the trail through which the Chinese and the North Vietnamese brought supplies from the north down into the south to the Viet Cong, into our adversaries there. And so our whole job was to basically try to keep those supplies from coming into the areas we were operating in. I've said, you know, oftentimes over the years, it sure would have been a heck of a lot easier if we'd have interdicted those supplies up north uh, before we had to take them on head to head on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was a very dangerous uh, mission, a very dangerous area, and there were a lot of firefights. And, and I, you know, as a, as a Marine, I actually have fought the Chinese because of the Chinese were basically one of the main elements that basically brought supplies down uh, through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So that was the area, but it was an area a very mountainous area, a triple canopy jungle, um, and very limited uh, ability to get logistical support uh, from our U.S. forces in that region. So is, is the, Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail on the, the western edge of Vietnam? That's correct. The Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, came, started, you know, in, in the upper reaches of China and came down on the western edge of, of North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And basically on the Cambodian Laos border. And of course, there were no international signs telling you, you know, whether you were in Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos. So we spent a, a good bit of our time in all three of those countries because, I mean, you basically had to ba- get take the enemy on where they were, not where you wish they would be. So your time there, I mean, Vietnam was, uh, the fighting was very heavy. Uh, it's extremely difficult due to the terrain. Uh, you mentioned a triple canopy jungle. Um, I mean, just just living in a place like that, you know, w- hiking through it or walking through it is, is difficult. But then having to conduct combat operations, you know, with gear, getting shot at, um, makes it an extremely difficult environment. Um, are you able to talk about uh, any of your experiences uh, in actual combat? Yeah, sure. And and, and actually, the, the first book that I wrote, it was called On War and Politics, The Battlefield Inside Washington Beltway, 
my main motivation for writing my first book was to tell the story of the young Marines that served with me at Vietnam because of their dedication, their sacrifice. They were all drafted. None of them were volunteers. And yet they did everything their country asked of them and more. Uh, the year I was there, uh, I, I actually got there in August of, of 69 and then was wounded in action on uh, July 4th, 1970, about five months after I, I got there. Um, we were, that was one of the peak years for casualties in Vietnam. On some days there were a hundred killed in action every day. But I mean, if you were a, if you were a small infantry platoon commander with these kind of areas, each of my troops, basically the combat load that you had to carry on your back was over a hundred pounds and in the mountains and in the monsoons, but then it was blazing hot during the day. Um, you basically had what we call 60 mortars. So you had a mortar tube, you had a base plate. Every member of the platoon had to carry two mortar rounds. Every member of the platoon had to carry extra ammunition because you didn't get your ammo resupply when you were supposed to. And if basically you were in a firefight and you ran out of ammunition, as you can well imagine, that is not a good situation uh, to be in. So I, for example, carried 17 magazines uh, of M16 ammunition. We'd had eight grenades. We also carried the light anti-tank weapon, the law, and we were allegedly supposed to get resupplied every three days. The only food we had there was sea rations, and that was each sea ration meal was 2,500 kilocalories a day. They were all in metal cans. They were very heavy, and if you basically got resupplied and had six meals, the troops basically didn't like carrying all that extra weight, so I had a challenge to keep them from eating all their meals the first day, and then... If you didn't get resupplied, we had a M60 machine gun. Each canister that of, of, that you carried had 250 rounds. You had a T&E and a base plate for that. So the basic combat load that a young Marine had to carry in Vietnam was, was quite excessive. And frankly, they haven't done much to change that. Plus, you had to wear a metal helmet, not a Kevlar helmet. You had to wear your flak jacket. I insisted that my troops know John Wayne. They had to have their helmet buckled at all times. They had to have their flak jacket zipped up at all times. Um, we had basically the jungle boot that they designed for Vietnam, uh, which was a very wet terrain. As I mentioned, the monsoons and when you were treaking, you know, through the rice paddies going up into the mountains, your boot would get waterlogged and there was no way for the water to get out. So we had to cut holes in our boots to let the water seep out because you could get what's called immersion foot, meaning cellulitis, which means the Marine would have a tough time actually hiking and walking. So not only were you, you had to deal with the fact that you could have snipers or booby traps or punji sticks uh, at any time, uh, you were basically carrying a very significant amount of gear on your back. You had one radio, a PRC 25. It was very heavy. The batteries didn't last that long, so you had to carry a lot of extra batteries. The batteries, and by the way, if you didn't have your, your tactical radio, you couldn't communicate and call in air support or artillery support. So the radio was your lifeline to, the, to your support. So that having batteries for the radio was very, very important. And, um, and, and we never had any heat tabs for our sea rats, so the meals you had to eat were cold all the time. We never got any hot chow. So... These young Marines put up with a whole heck of a lot. Uh, there was no new. You didn't know what day of the week it was. You were, there were no newspapers. There were no radios. There was no Internet. Um, and you didn't have any of the electronic gear that you have today. I basically uh, navigated with a lens compass, a 1 to 50,000 map, and a set of binoculars. 
And that was really all you had to basically figure out how to get from point A to point B. So um, these young Marines uh, performed uh, and, and did exactly what their country asked them to do. Uh, you mentioned the um, the sticks uh, that you had to watch out for. These sticks. I, I was recently uh, on social media. I saw this um, this travel account that I follow. This woman like just travels all around the world and shows her experiences. She was in Vietnam and uh, she was taking these tours. And I guess they went to some extent. They went into the jungles, and they were showing these pits where. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they had something attached to, so that it would rotate the floor and then you can see what was beneath it, or, or I, I think they did. And then you see like these pits with all these super sharp sticks uh, sticking out, and, and that's what you're referring to, right? That's correct. And, and basically, uh, because the, the, the enemy kind of knew the areas that we would try to operate in, they would build what we call these punji pits, punji stakes, and they would basically have these sharp sticks with poisonous uh, material on them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we had steel plates in the bottom of our boots. So allegedly, uh, but of course, you know, you could get stuck in the leg or stuck in the arm and they would cover them with foliage. So you wouldn't know there was a pit there. And if you're, you know, that's why you had to be really careful when you were walking down a trail and looking for booby traps, looking for these punji sticks and things like that. So it was a very, very difficult set of terrain and you never wanted to go in an area that looked like somebody had been there before because if somebody had been there before it could be booby trapped the other thing is they didn't wear uniforms so you didn't know in other words uh, the, the Viet Cong the North Vietnamese the Chinese uh, didn't wear uniforms so you didn't know who the who the good guys and the bad guys or, or gals were um, and two you had uh, uh, younger kids that basically uh, if they saw you and, and they came up close to your position, they would throw what we call Chicoms, Chinese grenades, into your position because they were fighting uh, for people that they thought were invading their country. And, and a Chicom, probably not as, as lethal as a U.S. grenade, but pretty lethal in its own right. So the problem was you, you always had to be, be looking behind your back and looking 360 because you never knew where, where, where the attack was going to come from. And so you had to be really, really careful. So it was not, in other words, the pucker factor for rifle companies in the field uh, was pretty intense every day. And you basically, what you did is you, you, you moved every day. You never stayed in the same position more than one day. That was too dangerous. You'd get up at the crack of dawn right when the sun was coming up because you wanted to be moving early so the enemy couldn't fix you. Then you would move till early afternoon because you would have to dig in your, your protective uh, foxholes and positions early in the afternoon because once it got dark, and, and the other challenge you had is you always wanted to keep the, the, the tactical, the school solution teaches you, you have four Marines for every, uh, every foxhole. So at one point, you know, one Marine, so 25% of the foxhole is, is up on watch and the other three, 75% is sleeping. But that's when you were supposed to have 50 Marines in a rifle platoon. We never had more than 25. And so it was, you, you didn't get a lot of sleep. Uh, and the other problem you had is you get pretty tired during the day. So as the second lieutenant, it was my job to walk the lines during the night and make sure my Marines were awake. And some of them weren't. And so you'd have to, that was not a really good situation to be in. So the pucker factor for rifle companies in the field, like the one that I had the privilege of, of commanding, um, the pucker factor was, was up all the time. 
And did you guys ever uh, have to deal with ambushes and things like that? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the the day I got seriously wounded was we we actually did get ambushed, and um, as I outlined, um, that um, the day before, um, my platoon, the first platoon, Lima Company, Third Battalion, Seventh Marines, First Marine Division, had come across some enemy concentrations in an area that were not expected, and um, therefore our our regimental commander, uh, Colonel Gildo Cotaspati of the Seventh Marines wanted us the next day to, to press into some very dangerous, which I knew was very dangerous terrain to find out what was going on. Um, after the fact, we learned that there was a, a North Vietnamese regiment that was, that attacked our fire support base LZ Ryder, the headquarters of the third battalion, seventh Marines several days later. But what happened was when, when I saw where they were telling me to go, I was very worried it was going to be an ambush because we were, going up what's called a finger with the high ground on both sides, which you never really want to do. And I kind of radioed back to my company commander, uh, Captain Jim Van Riper. This was not a, a wise thing to do, but but I was told the, the regimental commander said, do it anyway. So I actually did what you don't do in the triple canopy jungle where you, you, you I spread my platoon out because I was very worried that it was going to, we were going to be ambushed, which we were. And, and unfortunately, um, we had a number of, of Marines killed in action, and it took us an entire day to fight to the top of the mountain to get our wounded and dead Marines out. So unfortunately, um, you know, you did deal with ambushes. Um, that wasn't the only one, but that was one that I knew was going to be an ambush, but but had orders to basically charge the hill nevertheless. And so um you know that's just that's that happens in war. There's nothing nothing glamorous and glorious about war. And were you shot in this? Uh, I, I was. Ambush? I mean, what happened is my corpsman, Doc Weiser, uh, got hit by a sniper, and, and, he, and he was exposed out in the middle of a stream. And so I wanted to go give him first aid. He had a sucking chest wound, and with that, if you don't race, basically we have a special bandage we use for that. If you don't seal it off quickly. They can't breathe and they die. So I went out in the stream and 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 had gotten him sealed off, and then I got hit um, uh, in the back uh, by a sniper bullet that was so powerful it knocked me down the stream, and in fact it knocked my helmet off, which was buckled, and it knocked my rifle out of my hand. And I remember when I was being hit, the first thing I thought was, "Boy, I'm going to be doing a lot of paperwork for losing that rifle," and 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 I was I was kind of exposed in the middle of the stream. And, um, uh, the sniper was kind of plucking, plucking around me and, and another Marine, uh, came, um, um, out of a totally safe position to help rescue me, um, and pull me to safety. And unfortunately, um, the sniper got him, uh, in the back. Um, and I was able to, to bring him to the side of the stream. And unfortunately he did not survive. His name was Corporal Roy L. Hammonds. He was, like uh, 20 years old and he'd been in Vietnam uh, 12 and a half months. He had two more weeks before he was going to go back home to Texas. Wow. And uh, basically um, if, if he hadn't uh, taken that bullet, it would, it would for sure not kill me. And so this coming November 10th, every five years at the Vietnam Memorial um, group of people get together and read the names of all 58,000 uh, Marines and sailors and others that were killed in Vietnam, and and on at 1:14 p.m. this coming November 10th, I will have the privilege of reading 30 names, of which Corporal Hammond's name will be one. 
Wow. So, um, so after you're wounded, uh, and then you guys ended up taking the position uh, that you ordered on that mountain. We had to fight our way to the top of the mountain. We tried. I tried to get my medevacs out with choppers, and the choppers got shot down. That's how bad the intense wow. the firefight was. So we had to basically consolidate and fight ourselves up to the top of the mountain. It took an entire day, and then we were able to get the people that were wounded and, and killed in action out that evening. And I went out on the last chopper with Corporal Hammonds, and and uh, he and I had never met because he was in the actually in the third platoon. He wasn't in my platoon. Um, um, and then, you know, I, when, when we came off the chopper, I went into what's called first med. And of course, um, he was, he was put in a black body bag and, and, and went to, you know, the casualty, um, killed in action section. So what was your experience, uh, when you were medevac, were you then like flown out of Vietnam or did you stay there and then yeah, go so, back to the So States? basically the, the, the. So the, the, the room, first medical battalion was located in Da Nang, but it was not the battalion aid station that was closer by. And, you know, we used to joke uh, about first med because none of the Marines like that. And um, so when I, I'm coming off the chopper and the nurses and the doctors are, are grabbing me and everything, and, and I said, well, thank goodness I'm not at first med. And the doctor said, Lieutenant, welcome to first med. So it was first medical battalion. <laughs> And, you know, I did, I had emergency surgery, I guess. And then, uh, the next day, um, I was medevaced out of Vietnam on a C-141 starlight light, but Starlifter, which is a medevac, uh, airplane. And with a lot of other folks, with a lot of, you know, IVs and wires and things like that. And we were flown to Japan to the Yokosuka Naval Hospital. And so, that's actually how I found out what happened, you know, a few days later, because that the North Vietnamese regiment that I had come across the leading edge of a couple of days earlier attacked LZ Ryder and, and there were, and they actually got through the wire. So there were a lot of casualties and many of them ended up um, in the hospital with me. And as it turned out, the, but some of the helicopter pilots that had gotten shot down trying to medevac our, our team, they were also in the hospital. And then Doc Weiser was there and some of the other, wounded Marine from my platoon. So we were all there in the, in the Yakuska Naval Hospital. And so I was there for, you know, uh, over 60 days. And because Linda Johnson had a rule at that point, because so many Marines were getting killed on their second and third Purple Heart, if you were medevac, if you were seriously wounded enough to where you were medevac outside of Vietnam for more than 60 days, you could not go back to Vietnam. I tried to go back to Vietnam once I got out of the hospital, which was three or four months down the road. And I was not able, uh, uh, they didn't give me permission to go back because I wanted to go back to my unit. I was actually five months in the field. I was the senior second lieutenant in my battalion, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. The average lifespan of a Marine second lieutenant in Vietnam the time I was there was five weeks. So by lasting five months, I lasted a lot longer than a lot of my colleagues. And is that because they were targeting officers? No, that's because the fighting was so intense. That was just because mm, okay. you didn't. The first thing I did when I got in the field was take off my second lieutenant bars. And also, right. I never let my radio man have the whip antenna out, because if you were walking in front or behind the radio man, they knew that's where the officer was. And so you didn't wear your insignia in the field because they, they but I mean, basically, we, we were just we were in a built we were in an area 
the Quaithon Mountains that had the that of what's called an area of responsibility AOR had belonged to the U.S. Army's AmeriCal Division for a number of years. They didn't do any patrolling on the ground. They did all the patrolling from the little from helicopters. So they never rooted out any of the enemy. So when the Seventh Marines was given that area of responsibility, it was just infested with bad people. And of course, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was their main uh, supply route to bring uh, beans, bullets, and bandages into the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese that were basically down in the South. And so it was just a really bad area to be in in that particular particular time. Okay, so then uh, you you were released from the hospital, um, and then you had to go back to the states. I'm assuming. And uh, well, they wouldn't much... let me. This is this is the interesting thing about the Marine Corps. Your overseas tour at that time was 13 months. Because I had not served 13 months overseas, what's called my overseas control date was not up. So they sent me to Okinawa as non-deployable troops. So I was stuck on an island in Okinawa where wow. really I couldn't do much but administrative stuff. And then when I did my, my overseas control date was up, I got back to the States and I was put on the staff of the Marine Corps basic school that teaches all the second lieutenants, you know, and trains them to go to Vietnam. And I served there with two Medal of Honor recipients, Barney Barnum and Wes Fox, wow. uh, Oliver North, the legendary of the Iran Contra days was also on the staff there. I mean, it was a, it's where all the Marine lieutenants, that's where I got trained. That's where we still train them today. So that's what I, that's, you know, I spent my, my remaining uh, active duty time. At the time, as an officer, you had to serve four years on active duty. Um, and so I did that and then, then went into the Marine Corps Reserves after that. Okay. So, okay, so after you finished that assignment, um, this is when you went to work in the Senate? Well, I went to graduate school at the University of Georgia, and then I went to work right after that in the U.S. Senate and, and worked for Senator Sam Nunn from Georgia. And as he moved up through the system, I moved up through the system and ultimately uh, became the staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee, the committee responsible for funding the entire Department of Defense intelligence apparatus. And, and Senator Nunn was the chairman. I was the staff director. So I spent many years, and then he, he decided uh, after – um, three terms, 24 years that he was going to go back to Georgia and do other things, even though he could have been reelected, um, you know, forever and ever. And then I went into, I went into the private sector into industry at that point. Okay. So when you were working for the Senator, um, you were focusing on issues related to national security. Um, can you talk about some of what the focus was in those days? Well, I will tell you, we went through some very different uh, – in the 70s, the issue was basically recovering from Vietnam. All our forces were pulled out, you know, in the early 1970s. We went from the draft to the all-volunteer force in 1973, and it was a real struggle to, to keep the volunteer force alive during the decade of the 70s. Um, obviously, the Russian threat was growing, in the, and then, of course, uh, as we go into the 80s, Ronald Reagan is elected president, and he starts really building up our defense capabilities – um, you know, to deal with Russia and, and, and the Cold War. And so that was, uh, you know, during those eras, it was more of a buildup. Um, the Congress and particularly the Senate Armed Services Committee was very concerned about a number of operational flaws that we saw in our military, Grenada, Panama. And so we passed some legislation that fundamentally changed the operational nature called the Goldwater Nichols Bill in 86, created the Special Operations Command, that's so popular today. 
So, you know, it really depended on what decade we're in. And I mean, obviously, after the Cold War and the Berlin Wall came down, they reduced the size of our military. And and then, of course, after 9-11, uh, people started rebuilding it again. So it really it really depended on, you know, uh, the circumstances of, uh, at the time. I will say that, you know, despite going through the peak of the Cold War period, uh, the world was a lot more stable when you were dealing with just the Russian Warsaw Pact threat uh, than it is today. The world is much more unpredictable and unstable today than it ever was during the peak of the Cold War. So how was, uh, if you can recall, how was China viewed in, you know, in the days that you were working for the Senator, uh, Senator Sam Nunn uh, compared to now, which is, you know, it's a very adversarial na- uh, relationship? Well, it's interesting because, again, Nixon had the opening to China, and people say only a conservative president like Nixon could have had an opening to China. Uh, Jimmy Carter actually asked, President Carter actually asked Senator Nunn to travel to China uh, in 1979 to meet with Deng Xiaoping, who was then the premier, to find out you know, what the Chinese were really up to. We also basically passed the Taiwan Relations Act when I was there, and we actually wrote into the Taiwan Relations Act then that we would protect Taiwan, which is, of course, a major issue today. Uh, I don't think people really thought China was ever going to, you know, amount to uh, what we see today, uh, where China, I mean, Russia's got military, and obviously in Ukraine, but they don't have any kind of economic or political clout. China basically is strong militarily, technologically, economically, and diplomatically. So it's a much, much more difficult issue to for to deal with China today, and if you look at their manufacturing capability, you know back in the back in those days they couldn't even make little plastic umbrellas. Today, they right. make eleven warships uh, in one surface combatant in one shipyard, where all five of our for-profit yards can't build that many uh, naval combatants. And so, China was kind of an afterthought in those days. Now, I will mention that my father, Angelo Panaro used to tell me, because I talked to him about what we were doing vis-a-vis Russia, he said, don't forget China, don't forget China. I said, Dad, why are, what are you talking about? Nobody's focused on China. His roommate, he was the 1938 graduate of the Citadel, and his roommate was a Chinese-American and taught my dad a lot about what he thought China would ultimately be up to, that they ultimately, even if it took a 1,000 years, would want to take over the world. Well, guess what? Their Belt and Road Initiative, they've said basically – they want to be the dominant economy, the dominant military, the dominant technology, um, and and they have the and they've said it publicly. They've said they're going to reunite Taiwan, not let Taiwan be independent, um, and and they're well along that road. So uh, we we are dealing with a very very powerful adversary in China, and one whose intentions are clearly stated uh, that they want to dominate and and be the number one force in the world, and they're an authoritarian. Uh, country and the Chinese Communist Party calls all the shots. Russia, the Communist Party is not. It's, it's not about communism in Russia. It's about you know Mother Russia and expanding their borders and protecting their borders. Whereas in right. China, it's all about communism. And so uh, we we unfortunately didn't pay the attention we should have paid to China. You know, in the peak of the Cold War. The other thing that's happened is we did try to keep China and Russia at each other's throats during the Cold War. And at one point, Russia had. 44 divisions on the Mongolian border. And guess what? They're working together now. So one thing that we never wanted to have happen was China and Russia working together. And unfortunately, that's happening now. So, I mean, we, we and you've got the obviously Iran with the potential of developing the nuclear weapon, North Korea that has nuclear weapons. 
Um, so again, that's why I say the world very dangerous and unstable at this particular point in history. Yeah, I was doing a bunch of research on um, on China. Um, I interviewed a woman who survived uh, the the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong, um, and th- just the things that she was telling me was just absolutely horrible and 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 shocking. Um, so you know, very brutal regime uh, with Mao, and then uh, you know, following Mao. Uh, but what 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 I've come to understand and what's really sort of fascinating is that it seems that for decades China has had this these plans and ideas of uh, you know dominating uh, dominating the world and um, it seems that they would sh- show you know a very friendly face towards a lot of countries but in their internal discussions. Uh, they were, you know, sort of formulating these ideas that are now being played out um, in terms of, you know, well, the Belt and Road Initiative is is new, but, you know, the idea that they want to influence and, and control how things work in the world uh, is something that they've been doing for a long time internally. And uh, it's just fascinating that, that's to, I mean, you know, to see that. Their writings, writings are very consistent. It's just like we should have paid attention to Russia back in 2014 when he told us what he was going to do vis-a-vis Ukraine. They, they are a brutal police state. They are worse now than they were doing, doing Miles' time because it's a total police state. They totally control everybody's life there. And when China decides they want to build a dam, they move a million people whether they want to move or not. Right. You know, when in this country, the Environmental Protection Agency will take 10 years to figure out if we want to change a highway sign. So, I mean, it's a very brutal, brutal country. And, 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 and so, you know, I think we need to really pay attention. And, and Taiwan is very important because... 85% of the most sophisticated chips that we require for our military, our economy, basically are made in Taiwan. And right. certainly we don't want China. Right now, we're too dependent on China for pharmaceuticals and some of the rare earth minerals that we need. And so we've got to basically become a little bit more, we've got to become a lot more independent in the U.S. in terms of our own manufacturing capability. At the peak of COVID, you know, when the, the head of the New England Patriots wanted to basically help the country with ventilators and, and masks and things of that nature. Uh, and he got his private airplane to go pick up a bunch of supplies. He didn't go to Peoria, Illinois. He flew his plane to China. We got all that stuff from China. That's pathetic. And so we've just got a lot that we've got to do to kind of reassert. I mean, if you look at World War II, there's a book out called Freedom's Forge. And if you look at the way we were able to prevail against the Nazis and against the Japanese and the Italians in World War II, it was our industrial might where we were building thousands of ships, thousands of bombers, thousands of tanks, billions of rounds of ammunition. We can't do that today. China actually, their purchasing power, their economy, because of the way they operate, is more efficient than ours, while ours is still technically larger. They buy more for their yuan than we buy for our dollar. And so this is something we've got to pay a lot of attention to. And, and people are paying attention. The CHIPS Act that was just passed is very important. But yes. we should never underestimate. I mean, people say, well, we've got to cooperate. We've got to work with them. Don't get – I mean, China has no intention. They are an adversary. They are not a friendly state. Yeah, and it's um, – I think the pandemic really exposed some of that, Um you know, like you said, uh, Robert Kraft sent a plane to go get uh, supplies and stuff that was needed, medical supplies. But then there was also a point 
uh, during the pandemic where, uh, you know, Trump was kind of going back and forth uh, about the origins of COVID and uh, they threatened to withhold, like there was some, I forget what companies, uh, American companies own these factories in China, these manufacturing factories. And um, they threatened to block any exports of, you know, which is technically American owned uh, life-saving medical supplies if they if uh, the U.S. government continued to talk about how COVID originated in, in Wuhan or, or whatever it was that they were fighting about at the time in the media. And, um, and, and that was, for me, that was eye-opening. And then that led me to start to, to look at, you know, what are our manufacturing capabilities? Uh, what do we export essentially to China, uh, you know, with, with everything they produce, you know, using U.S. dollars and things like that. So uh, it's a major problem. And, and then also uh, there's a whole bunch of changes happening in the world uh, with Russia having invaded Ukraine. Uh, and then now uh, a lot of Western Europe has to figure out where they're going to get their oil from uh, because, you know, the situation with, with Russia and, and the energy is, is becoming untenable. So there are a ton of changes happening at the same time. And it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, no, and I mean, we need to reshore a lot of our manufacturing capability. 40% of our pharmaceuticals come from China. We should not be dependent on China for that. The European allies, God love them, because they've been very united in terms of supporting Ukraine and, and NATO working together, but they still buy Russian oil and gas. And and despite all the money that we provided to Ukraine for arms and things of that nature, European allies, the NATO allies have sent Russia you know, you know, close to $100 billion in oil and gas because they need to buy it. And so they're they're gradually weaning themselves off. And we need to be energy independent here in the United States of America as well. For, for China, it's one thing to send them agricultural products and grain and, and pork and things like that that they can't convert to military supplies. On the other hand, they want our technology. And so what happens is if they don't steal our intellectual property, which they do all the time, uh, they, if any country that's going to do business with China, China insists on arrangements that really aren't aren't fair. So I think we just have to understand where China's headed, and 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 the fact that they fully intend to get there. I, um, and again, we've got to do a lot more to basically deter China from uh, invading Taiwan. And one way you do that is you give China, Taiwan offensive capability they don't have now. That if China was to attack them. Taiwan would be able to, for example, threaten Shanghai, which is China's financial and cultural center, which they can't do now. So China, you've got to put stuff in where you deter China because you don't ever want to get in a shooting war. I mean, the ra- the vast ranges of the Pacific are, are just incredible for, for people that don't understand how difficult it would be to deal with a situation in the Taiwan Straits uh, and the ranges that you have to operate in for our Navy and our Air Force and things of that nature. It's a very, very difficult scenario. So what you want to do is keep that conflict from ever starting. We should have deterred Russia. I mean, we didn't. Um, various administrations, including Obama and Trump, did not give Ukraine the kind of offensive weapons that they needed that would have kept given Putin somewhat of a pause to go in there. We had a lot of time when he was massing his forces on the border that we could have beefed up their offensive capability uh, we didn't do it. And so now, you know, we're in the middle of a, of a pretty uh, gruesome war. And anybody uh, like I had the experience in Vietnam, anybody that's been on the receiving end of artillery, um, it's a very, very devastating weapon. Uh, and, and again, that's why it's 
you know, they're destroying the, the beautiful Ukrainian cities, they're killing women and children, but they're on the, on the military side, there are a lot of casualties on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, because this is a, this is a brutal, brutal war. This is, there's, you know, uh, artillery is a very, very damaging um, weapon. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the deterrent factor uh, shouldn't be overlooked. And I, you know, when you're talking about Ukraine specifically, uh, I think there's some evidence that deterrence may have uh, gone a bit further in, in deterring them from actually doing anything in, in terms of sending some weapons there and whatnot. But when the, uh, I actually have some friends um, who are currently in Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians uh, fighting against the Russians. And um, one of them is a, an active duty uh, special forces guy, a Ukrainian special forces guy. And one of the things he told me, because uh, I, I asked why were there so many Russian casualties in the, in, the, in the sort of openings of the war? And what he said was that the Russians were essentially just like driving in columns straight into Ukraine uh, and he believes they thought that the Ukrainians were just going to surrender. And, uh, and one of his examples of, of why he thought that was, um, well, for one, they, they'd gotten into a couple of firefights and killed some Russians. And then they, they were going through their stuff and they were, they were finding parade uniforms and instructions on, on how to conduct the, the, unif uh, the, uh, the ceremonies and whatnot. Uh, and then also, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the airport, but there was an airport uh, near Kiev, that uh, Russian paratroopers landed like literally directly in the airport, and uh, there were Ukrainian uh, special forces and infantry already in position at the airport. He wasn't there, but he, some of his uh, his unit was, and he's and they were talking afterwards. So basically, they they just landed in the middle of the airport and just got off the helicopter like willy nilly, and. Uh, the the only reason the Ukrainians didn't open fire immediately is because they were so shocked that they would do that. But then eventually, that you know, they did get into a fight. Uh, the Russians ended up taking the the airport, but they lost a bunch of uh, elite infantry units in order to take it. Um, so I think that kind of just shows that had there been some, you know, some more advanced weaponry sent into Ukraine before the invasion, they might have considered uh, not invading. I, I totally agree with you. I think I think that that's a lesson for for China and Taiwan is we gotta we've gotta give Taiwan we've gotta improve deterrence so that we don't get into a shooting war with China and Taiwan. Um, and so that that's that's a lesson from Ukraine. And and of course the bravery of the Ukrainian fighters, the fact that the NATO and the West basically um, got united and is sending an incredible amount of, of supplies and equipment in, but. Frankly, in the early days, uh, we should have had some air air uh, capability when they had those columns out there. They that was they were basically the Russians were shooting sitting ducks, and yet they, the Ukrainians didn't have the capability to take them out early on. The other thing is they ought to be able to do what they just did in Crimea, which is attack Russia supplies before they get into Ukraine. It's silly to say that. Well, you can't if you give you these weapons, you can't use them to hit targets in Russia. That's ridiculous. I mean, no military ought to be able to be constrained where you can't go after the others resupply and fuel and ammunition depots. But um, obviously, people are worried about escalation. I, my argument there is that the risk of Putin winning in Ukraine is far worse 
than the risk of him escalating uh, the war that we're in right now. Um, because if he basically was to prevail, then that would give Iran, North Korea, and China an open uh, openness to basically use military force for their own reasons, because they'll see the West was not able to keep Putin from prevailing. Right. And, uh, and well, Putin, uh, you know, his, his initiating this invasion, I mean, he, he'd done what the past several U.S. presidents couldn't do, and that was get NATO, NATO members to increase their military spending. Correct. I mean, they, he did do that. I mean, he certainly didn't want that. And for Sweden and Finland to join NATO, that's pretty remarkable. And so, and Finland, you know, has an 803-mile border with Russia, and we ought to be beefing up the capability there. So it puts Russia, part of their border, at risk. And, you know, we, Putin's got to understand this is a two-way street. It's not a one, he's not on a one-way superhighway into the rest into the West. And that was the other point is if we don't stop him in Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. Give me a break. He's been very yeah. clear about his ultimate goals. And so that's another reason um, why we've got to basically stand our ground and, and help the Ukrainians defeat Putin in Ukraine. I mean, it's a sovereign country, sovereign territory. Um, we should have done something when he invaded Crimea and we did. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting in terms of like, you know, how, uh, how some of this support uh, for Ukraine is, is sold right to the American people. And um, I would say there's a large percentage and they're probably mostly conservatives um, who are against sending aid to Ukraine, who sort of view Putin either neutrally or in a, a favorable light. And um, it, it's, it's just it's kind of fascinating uh, I was in a uh, a Twitter space a couple of months ago, uh, and the in the space were several uh, several guys who had some sort of uh, foreign experience. Uh, you know, they discussed national security stuff, and I actually agreed with them on a, a ton of things, uh, particularly when they spoke about Iran. But then they they held a, a room of talking about Russia, and I couldn't believe what they were saying. Uh, essentially, they were. Uh, blaming the Russian invasion in Ukraine on America and NATO. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was it was crazy. It, it really sounded like uh, Russian propaganda, uh, what they're saying. And uh, but but very recently, some of Putin's uh, top officials were are, are saying openly saying that, uh, you know, we're not going to stop with Ukraine. We're looking at other nations nearby, you know, probably Estonia. Uh, you know the former uh, Soviet Union states. So the, you know the the sort of lie that the Kremlin put out about how this is the only reason we're doing this is is to protect ourselves uh, from the expansion of NATO and, and America. But in reality, and and Putin had stated this before the invasion, I think um, how he he dreams that the the Soviet Union should be reunited essentially. Um, so it's just interesting to hear Americans sort of speak, uh, you know, regurgitate some of the Kremlin propaganda. Yeah, it's very worrisome. The, the far right and the far left has an isolationist uh, sentiment that basically we've learned through history gets us into world wars. And so I worry about right. that. And you're spot on in your, your analysis. And you, you have very conservative members that, that aren't supporting um, the – uh, support to Ukraine or the, the the helping Ukraine, and you have very liberal members uh, that aren't supporting it either, and so that's a very worrisome. And our patience 
the wet Putin will be very patient. And so he he's probably calculating just like Ho Chi Minh calculated that the U.S. will lose patience in Vietnam, which we did. We lose patience in Afghanistan, which which we did. And so he's kind of thinking I'm there for the long haul. Now, if we can continue to inflict the damage that's being inflicted on him and his forces now, maybe that won't be the case. But but it's a very worrisome situation to basically see this isolationist uh, tendency that basically has gotten our nation into a couple of world wars cropping up on both the far right and the far left. So recently uh, there was a, you know, an, an increase in tensions with, between China, U.S. Uh, surrounded, uh, surrounding Taiwan. Um, Senator Nancy Pelosi stopped there recently. Very controversial. Um, what did you think about that? Uh, her going there. Well, I'm glad she went. I thought it was a very positive signal for the Speaker of the House and many members of Congress, including my old boss, Senator Nunn, has traveled there. The Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee has been there. I thought it was a very positive signal. I, I don't have the same hand ring that we've been reading in the media from various parts of the administration and the Pentagon about this. I mean, we, we have to understand, you know, we can't let China dictate to us, you know, what we can and can't do in the South China Sea or were Taiwan. And so I think the fact that she showed the flag and, and went over there in a very public way was a very positive development. And, and I think we need to, I mean, look, we can't play kissy pace with China. Uh, we've done that and it doesn't work. And look yeah. at where they are. I mean, they, right. they're on the march militarily, technologically, diplomatically, and economically, because we basically thought of China that if we work with them and we're nice to them, they were going to be a, a productive member of the world order, which they aren't. They want to destroy the world order. They want to destroy the international organization. They don't believe in the rule of law. They're fundamentally 100 percent opposite of what we believe in in terms of democracy. And so we've got to basically understand them for what they are. And, and we certainly we don't want to get in a world war with China or a shooting war with China, but we've got to be in a position to make sure we, you know, by deterring them that we don't have that. But on the other hand, you know, the enemy always gets a vote. I mean, we don't start. I mean, if you go and look, I would say, you know, other than the Revolutionary War, uh, I don't believe America started a lot of wars. I mean, they mostly are started by our adversaries. We certainly didn't start World War One or World War Two. We certainly didn't start the Korean War. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't basically assume that China isn't going to, at some point when they feel like they've got military dominance, that they might not decide to do what other countries have decided in the past, authoritarian dictators, uh, that they're going to try to dominate the world. So we've got to be ready for that. And we've got to have the kind of capabilities and economic prowess and military prowess that keeps from ever, them from ever making that calculation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they have a very, very different system there, as you stated before, uh, you know, very authoritative, uh, authoritarianism style uh, of, of governing, um, essentially a surveillance state. Um, right. And, and, and there's there's a ton of disadvantages to that, you know, especially from the this, this standpoint of the citizens of China. Um, but in, in terms of uh, their ability to mobilize and their ability to uh, sort of use their economic prowess uh, and and sort of weave that into their foreign policy and, and their military. Uh, it's it's really, in some ways, better than what the U.S. can do. Uh, 
because well, we are because we're there, a democracy. There's a lot of corruption there. There's a lot of corruption right. there, and they're bribing people. Their company, their Chinese-run companies, and one of the reasons they have more bang for the buck in the fence is they don't have to make a profit like our for-profit companies have to make. Because if we don't make a profit, we're not going to be able to get the capital we need to run our companies because you have to get capital from the capital markets. Um, they don't have to basically have all the rules and regulations that our companies have to deal with, many of them very appropriate. So I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying they, they certainly, uh, and, and, you know, they're buying South America, they're buying Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, they're building, you know, eight lane highway from China to the warm water through Pakistan and paying for all of that and using Chinese labor. Uh, there, is at the point we were spending 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan they were basically rebuilding their infrastructure and, and spending money, um, you know, buying friends and allies, not that they have true friends and allies. And that's one of the strengths that we still have vis-a-vis China. We have friends and we have allies and they don't. Um, but they, they are certainly uh, take the long-term view and have been very aggressive. They're building bases in places where we w- wish they were, weren't having bases overseas. So they're, they're expanding their footprint quite far beyond, you know, the South China Sea and the islands that they've they built up in that region. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Africa. Um, and it, it's really sort of fascinating to watch, uh, you know, what they're doing in Africa. They essentially give uh, loans to countries that they know the country cannot pay back. And then once they default on these loans, they say, oh, well, since you can't pay us back, we're going to take this airport. We're going to take this seaport. And um, and they're doing it all over Africa. And I have friends who um, who spent, you know, 20 years in, in U.S. Special Forces and spent a number of years in Africa. You know, the last 10 years, they were there quite a bit. And uh, and they were telling me, yeah, we see the Chinese all over Africa and in, in all kind of places. Um you know they're they're building things. They use uh, Chinese laborers. Uh, you know they've you know come across Chinese special forces. I mean it's it's really crazy what they're doing. No no question about it. It's very worrisome. They have more diplomatic posts around the world than the U.S. has now. Okay, so um, you know we're speaking on all of these things, uh, all of these. Uh, issues that are, are important and, and vital to the U.S. and the U.S. Uh, security. Uh, and th- this all ties into your, your latest book, uh, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Um, so can you just describe uh, for the audience what the problem is uh, that you outline in this book? So basically the problem is we're not getting the bang for the buck we should for the dollars we spend. So we're spending in constant dollars, and that's a measurement of that takes inflation out, so it's kind of lets you look over time at what we're investing in our national security. We're spending more than the peak of the Reagan buildup, and yet what we're getting for those dollars is a 50% smaller force, a force that in many areas is less ready and less capable. So while we're spending more and more money, we're not getting the defense capability we need to deal with the adversaries in the world we have to deal with China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, global terrorism, and things of that nature. And so my whole book is about reforming and focusing on output, not input. Everybody likes to argue about, well, what's the top line? How much money are we spending on defense? Well, the Biden budget's too small. The Trump budget's too small. Let's add some money. It ought to be, the debate ought to be about, okay, 
what are we getting for those dollars? Are we getting the maximum amount of output, the maximum amount of defense capability for the dollars we spend? And if not, how do we basically improve that? And so that's what the ever-shrinking fighting force is about. The, the nature of the problem is we're spending more and getting less. For example, the Department of Defense spends over $420 billion a year on goods and services, supplies, and equipment. And about the most charitable thing you can say about that output is spend more, take longer, get less. And so we've got to change that. And there's a lot of reasons for, for why this is happening. Um, the the very bureaucratic and cumbersome acquisition system, the, 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 the all-in cost of the all-volunteer force. Unlike China, we now 60 to 65 percent of the entire defense budget covers personnel costs, and they're rising all the time. And, and right now, we're having a very difficult recruiting environment. So you've got the Navy paying $100,000 bonuses to get people to join the Navy and go to sea. I mean, you just can't keep that up. And so th- this is the challenge, is, is we've got to deal with these threats, and we've got to improve our national security. But, but, but we've been adding a lot of money to it for, for a number of years, and we're not getting the bang for the buck we need for the dollars we spend. So, so it's it's really fascinating, uh, and you dive into this issue in great detail in your book. Um, but what what causes that? Is it is it the bureaucracy, and then is there some level of corruption involved? Like like why is that? I don't think there's corruption involved. I mean, sure, there, there are people that don't do the right thing, but it's very, very minimal. I think basically the former Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, once told me, Arnold, bad processes beat good people every day. We have in the Department of Defense, in uniform, in the defense civilians, in the defense contractors, in the Congress, dedicated people that are working very hard every day to have the best national security we can get. But they are, they are laboring under just horrible, broken processes, the acquisition process in the thing, the, the congressional budget process. Congress has not passed the defense budget on time for 25 consecutive years. We start every year under what's called a continuing resolution, which is a horrible way to, to run the department and run the government. And so it's these internal bureaucratic processes um, that, that our government uses in the red tape and the horrible, you know, inefficiencies they have and how they go about doing things. I mean, it's not like the private sector. Um, and, and if we did more things in the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense is the world's largest and most complex organization. And if you look at the scope of the act- activities, I mean, there are 28 defense agencies when we used to have just one. There are 32 layers of management from a junior accident officer to the Secretary of Defense. We, we, well, business doesn't have hardly any layers of management anymore. So in government, we're still very inefficient and ineffective. And it's not the people. It's the basically the bureaucratic organizations and the bureaucratic processes. The, the, the DOD acquisition regulations that 35 contracting officers have to adhere to to basically give contracts to the defense companies, you know, it's tens of thousands of pages long. And every bit of it was put there to keep anybody from making just the one mistake. And so, you know, every time something goes wrong, they had another 500 pages of, of bureaucratic regulations. So that's the problem. So did this get worse? Uh, you know, after 9-11, there was an expansion uh, of national security agencies. Did this problem get worse after 
I think it's gotten worse because again we're we we are now spending eye watering levels in the budget and and for example, even with the Biden budget this year that he asked for an increase, he the active duty force is getting smaller again. So every single year the budget has gone up, the active duty military has gotten smaller. That's why I call it the ever shrinking fighting force. Again, we have fifty percent less combat units, uh combatants and submarines, Air Force fighter squadrons, army uh, infantry units, Marine Corps infantry units than we had in the peak of the Cold War and when we were spending a lot less money. I mean, it's it's really ridiculous. And so how are we ever going to deter China and combat things if we if we basically and I mean, you look at the Norm Augustine wrote that Norm Augustine, one of our most respective industrial leaders and government leaders, wrote a book, you know, 20 plus years ago called Augustine's Laws. And what he said is the, the increasing cost of our major weapon systems and the cost of supporting those weapon systems over their life cycle keeps going up so much that basically we're going to get to the point where we buy one ship, one tank, one plane, one truck. We're getting very close to that right now when you look at the cost. A Ford-class carrier costs $15 billion now to build one aircraft carrier. And that doesn't include the cost of the airplanes and, and the people that will go on the aircraft carrier. And so... It's just the, the, the incredible um, cost curve. And again, in World War II and Freedom's Forge, when we built things by the tens of the thousands and we built them in less than a year, um, we've just not been in the, in able to do that. And we've got to, and we're dealing with China is outproducing us. They have, a, they have a naval shipyard that can produce 11 surface combatants in one year, which is more than all five of our for-profit yards can, can build. So we, we've got to deal with this. We've got to basically make some fundamental changes. And Congress is part of the problem. Congress basically, for example, forces the Pentagon to keep a lot of older weapon systems that they want to get rid of. Yeah, so that's an interesting point uh, about Congress. And this is something that I've uh, read about and heard about uh, over the years, about how there are certain things that the, the military doesn't even want. But... Uh, Congress will sort of, in a, in a way, force them to to uh, add certain things to the budget or keep certain things there. Um, why is that? Well, Congress has the power of the purse. Under the Article One, Section 8, Congress has the constitutional authority to raise armies, maintain navies, and, and, and no money shall get spent in the government unless it's appropriated by the Congress. So the Constitution, Congress has this authority, and sometimes they use it wisely and Sometimes they don't. Look, the Pentagon's not always right. There are many things that Congress has done that were good where the Pentagon was not in favor of it. But there are a lot of things that Congress does that the Pentagon does not support, and Congress shouldn't overrule the Pentagon, certainly keeping aging weapon systems a lot longer than they're efficient because of local jobs and things of like. That's not a good thing. So, But Congress, basically, this is their constitutional authority. But again, like I say, in, in the last 25 years, They've not done the budget on time. And so they're not meeting their constitutional responsibilities, um, which they have. Yeah, I mean, you, you see it uh, every year, um, you know, as, as far as passing budgets. It, it seems like it's always it comes down to the last minute. Um, you know, there's always a, a bit of a, a showmanship going on and, and uh, things like that. And it seems like it's like that every single year. It is, and they've and they've they've gotten so used to it that they're not they're not even shamed by it anymore. But it's very, very inefficient, particularly in an era where we're dealing with higher than 
plan for inflation. When you basically stick the Pentagon, the Pentagon's losing right now two to three billion dollars a month in purchasing power because they did not budget for the higher inflation. And so the ever shrinking fighting force, the bang for the buck is even worse now because of inflation than it was before. The, the purchasing power of the department has been significantly eroded. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, all of this stuff is, is, is incredibly important. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that you're, you're here today to speak about some of these things, uh, given your experience and, um, and your service uh, in the Marine Corps and, and the Senate. Um, so when you, uh, when did you officially uh, retire from military service? So I, I basically served for close to 35 years, and I retired in 2003. Um, I had the 4th Marine, which was the lead division in World War II in the Battle of Iwo Jima, and, and the division that basically is, is was called up for after 9-11. And, and I was head of the Marine Corps Reserve and mobilized myself as a reservist for three additional conflicts after Vietnam. But I did retire. You know, it's been a while. It seems like just yesterday – but I actually retired in October 2003 from the Marine Corps. And the the rank that you – what was the rank that you finished at officially? I was a major general um, in the Marine Corps, which, uh, you know, far higher than I ever would have dreamed that I – when I was sitting as a second lieutenant over in Vietnam in the Quezon Mountains and trying to figure out, you know, where I was with my lensatic compass at 1 to 50,000 maps, if anybody had ever said, hey, hey, lieutenant, you'll probably be a general someday – I don't think anybody would have predicted that. I certainly didn't. So you didn't plan to sort of, uh, you know, rise through the ranks, you know, and at I that did, moment. I so. did not. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. The, the, you know, I basically, as I mentioned, I was a draft motivated volunteer. I felt my obligation to serve my country. Um, but I only wanted to, I didn't want to be a, an active duty Marine and, and, I went in the reserves because uh, Creighton Abrams, who was chief of staff of the Army, came to visit Senator Nunn, and he heard about my service in Vietnam. He said, well, did you stay in the reserves? I said, well, no, General. I didn't want to go in the reserves because I didn't think they were a very good outfit. He said, well, Arnold, we're never again going to go to a war if we don't call up the Guard and Reserve. I think they're going to be very important. You ought to join the reserves. And so based on that, I did. And over the years, you know, um, we did become a lot more important. Over a million members of the Guard Reserve have been mobilized since 9-11 to serve their country. And so I, I felt I was lucky. And, and even when I was in the reserves, it was not my aspiration to, to become a general officer. I think I was just very fortunate in the assignments that I was given and very fortunate that I was able to perform um, at a level that people had confidence in my ability uh, as a leader. And, and I served as a general officer for, for 10 years, which was, you know, a, a good long time and, and quite a privilege. And had two or three really, really great commands as a general officer, including the 4th Marine Division. That's awesome. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating. Uh, you've led an interesting life and uh, done some fascinating things. And uh, you know, I want to thank you for coming on today. And I want to thank you for your service as well. And, oh, sorry, before I, I give it back to you, where can people get your book, uh, the audience if they're interested. Well, they can, I think they can get it uh, at Amazon, uh, obviously, um, easily easily ordered on Amazon. And, and, and I also would say as, as we close out, you know, every day that I wake up, uh, I, I, I understand I have an obligation to 
Corporal, Corporal Roy Hammond because uh, he didn't have the he didn't have the great fight that I was able to have because he saved my life as a fellow Marine in Vietnam. So I feel a tremendous obligation to him and to those young Marines that served with me in Vietnam that did not make it home to basically do everything I possibly can to fulfill the obligation I have to them, but also to make our country a better place because of their sacrifice. Thank you.
Thank mm-hmm. you.